Coaching Inside the Box. A youth soccer coaching podcast. A Brit, a Brazilian, and an American discuss culture and environment and the impact it has on youth development. Can you coach inside the box? Hello and welcome back to Coaching Inside the Box episode 45. It has been a minute since we recorded. Uh, Philippe has been away at the Midwest Regionals in St. Louis. I've been away in Florida at Supercopa with my uh, younger group, um, and Andy got a new set of dentures. So we've had a very busy June, but we are ready to be back, ready to talk soccer, ready to talk culture, ready to talk how culture and soccer and that cross-section between the two can have such an impact positively or negatively on uh, on players' game and, and how far they, they can reach in the game. This episode specifically can is going to be kind of fun, no, because we're going to no, talk about no. why Andy didn't play soccer professionally at the highest level. Um, we're going to dig into Andy's background um, back before he had dentures um, and, uh, and I'm, I'm have a good d- that's time. That's double now. I'm, I'm going straight to human resources after this conversation, and I'm going to file a complaint. Who you is know, HR that, these days? That, that is, I don't even know. That, that is ages. Probably me. If it's still Kyle, we're good. <laughs> probably me at probably this point. <laughs> and I'm allowing <laughs> Have you really? Two slams on my age? I mean, uh, <laughs> uh, you can look at it as a slam. I think. I think your dentures look great, Andy. I think it's a step up. <laughs> Andy, I hope I live long enough for people to make fun of my age. <laughs> oh, I got about six daggers to pull out of my back right now. <laughs> welcome back. Welcome back. Welcome back. So you, it's been, you missed insulting me, didn't you? you that, know, let's be honest. It's my favorite thing about <laughs> these, these episodes. Uh, definitely not the joke. So. Uh, it's been... It's hey, been hey, a, hey, I got some jokes. Oh. <laughs> I knew you'd be excited. You, you only have four, four, four notes, which kind of gets me scared because I've never seen you with that. But there's a lot of words of on those. I'm notes. transferring my notes onto the. Phone. Look at you! Oh, okay. he's environmentally that friendly. Sense. Yeah, that makes sense. So, are you ready for the jokes? Man, boy, am I ever! <laughs> so, a child asked his father, "How did we become people?" Remember, these are related to what we're working on now. So this is related to, you know, family, environment, upbringing, all that stuff. I remember. A child asked his father, how did we become people? So his father said, Adam and Eve made babies. Then their babies became adults and made babies and so on. The child then went to his mother, asked her the same question, and she told him, we were monkeys. Then we evolved to become like we are now. The child ran back to his father and said, you lied to me. His father calmly replied, no, son, I didn't. Your mum was talking about her side of the family. <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty funny. That's the first hey, joke you shared. That's the best liked. one, yeah. Andy. Well done. Well done. Let's stop she, there. I mean, let's stop on the top. Please, please, please. It's like Pele. He retired at 31. He didn't need to keep going. He was good. Three World Cups. Now, my, my, my audience needs reassurance that I haven't all of a sudden found a sense of humor. Um, this is the next joke. I was on a date once and a girl asked me, what's my love language? I said, I don't even know what that is. She said, how did you feel love from your family growing up? After a brief pause, I replied, lots of slaps and punches. (laughs) It wasn't as good as the first one, right? No. 
That was very predictable, by the way. Here's the next one. My dad always invested in good photographic and video equipment and took many pictures and movies of my sister and I as kids. When I was in my early 20s and about to get married, I asked him why. His response was interesting. He said, evidence, my son, evidence. It's a little bit of a thoughtful one, that one. Uh, a lot of that... <laughs> I think a lot of that was uh, linked to, you know, the um, the police. Can you please you stop know, explaining it? <laughs> <laughs> it says the Brazilian who has a tough time understanding the English language. <laughs> okay, here's the next one. When I was a baby, my mum took me on a bus. The male bus driver said, Ugh, that's the ugliest baby that I've ever seen. My mum was fuming, and as she sat down next to another woman passenger said, the driver just insulted me. The woman said, you go back there and tell him off, love. While you're doing it, I'll hold your monkey for you. <laughs> <laughs> I was not the best-looking baby, obviously. <laughs> My wife, this is the last one. You'll be glad to know this is the last one. My wife and I were in church last Sunday, and you were making fun of my age. Mm-hmm. This is a good one for that. My wife and I were in church last Sunday. During the sermon, I leaned towards her and I whispered, I just let out a long, silent fart, and it's a smelly one. What should I do? <laughs> she replied, first replace the batteries in your hearing aid. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's pretty funny. <laughs> Uh, uh, and on that note <laughs> this is all about the environment yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, this mean, is all about we're making progress I'll, I'll, I'll give you that we're making progress uh, to, to give the uh, the listeners um, an update as to what we're going to talk about today so so we we always leading up to an episode have a have a text string a text chain where we're talking about discussing what might be our next topic and obviously the last two or three episodes have been largely built around for us in Kansas city leading up to tryouts. You'll be happy to know that the tryouts are over. Uh, they went largely well, um, uh, for, from a club perspective, but most of our episodes were built around, um, concepts that we thought were, um, uh, topical and, and, and relevant at that time in the Kansas city soccer market. To that end, we, we, we debated potentially digging in deep to one of Andy's episode or one of Andy's, uh, chapters in, in, uh, training soccer legend. Um, and I think that's probably what we'll do at some point. But Andy had a really cool suggestion. And his suggestion was, let's do a three-part episode series where we dig into the upbringing for each of us individually. And not not as a way to applaud um, how great our upbringing was um, necessarily to us becoming the, the people that we are and the soccer players that we became, but instead really dig into what what perhaps was missing um, from an environment and cultural perspective um, related to our, our our upbringing and how that impacted us from a soccer perspective. And this should be um, kind of a fun, interesting uh, three episode, three series. Um, you know, you've got Andy who grew up in the 70s in England. You've got Philippe that grew 1870s. up... 1870s. 1870s. <laughs> you got Philippe that grew up, what, in the 90s in Brazil. And then you got me that grew up in the late 80s and 90s here in the U.S in Kansas City. So it should be um, a fun, interesting look. But as with everything, we're going to start with Andy um, and work our way um, uh, from the oldest um, uh, podcast 
uh, uh, character to uh, and the best to the looking. youngest. Oh, yeah, the best <laughs> looking. Which really says a lot about Philippe and I's look, uh, considering uh, Andy, the oldest, by a significant margin, considers himself the best looking. But it might just because his eyesight is failing. <laughs> or or uh, senile dementia is setting in. <laughs> Uh, all right, so um, okay, so let's let's frame this conversation before we dig in, right? So so we as a coaching uh, community, the three of us in the club that we um, that we all coach with, really focuses. And you, if you're a listener, you understand this, but really focuses in on, on, on using soccer as a vehicle to teach life lesson, lessons, encouraging kids to uh, to to embrace failure, um, to search out, seek out failure, especially in the in the in the early stages, so that they. Um, gain uh, a, a really wide comfort zone and an ability to play in really t- uh, difficult circumstances, right? Um, tight spaces, um, uh, uh, numerous defenders, and they're still able to create and build off of that. Um, I don't think this is going to come as a surprise to anybody. Andy's soccer environment growing up was not that. Um, and so, um, Andy, I'm, I'm really curious if you could paint a picture with your words um, for us. Like, what did, um, what did the environment look like that you learned to, to fall in love and, and play the game? And, and that's, you know, for just a little bit later in the conversation, um, you know, and, and it's important to understand that I did have bits and pieces of a good environment you know, when I was growing up, you know, that that we've put into good use now. But, you know, because it was England, I had lots of pieces that were not optimizing in my environment. And so, um, but before we get into, you know, that kind of next phase of this episode, um, let's go back to the jokes just briefly and, and let's, let's understand why I picked those jokes. Uh, and those jokes were selected because they all describe different circumstances and environments. And the misconceptions some people have about other people within those environments, you know, the, the subject matter, the perceptions, the motives, etc. And, and so um, I, you know, I pulled out a, a quote by Alan Greenspan, who was the chairman of the Federal Reserve for, for nearly 20 years. Uh, and this quote goes like this. I know you think you understand what you thought I said but I'm not sure you realize that what you heard is not what I meant. That takes some unpacking, doesn't it? You know, to just, you know, work through that brief word salad. So I know you think you understand what you thought I said, but I'm not sure you realize that what you heard is not what I meant. So this statement is so true of us as human beings. No matter how hard we try to convey our message succinctly, and intelligently, everyone sees the world as they are, instead of as the world actually is. Which means that everyone we try to help, you know, as being the Legends Club, walks away from our discussions with a different perception of what it is that has led to the Legends Club's success, and how kids from ben- can benefit um, from being involved with our club. And their differences, the people that walk away, their differences may be small ones, but may have a big negative result on the eventual benefit that their kids can get out of our club. You know, because they differ in certain ways is they walk away and to a certain degree, we all do this. We think we know better than the experts that we're trusting our kids with. 
you know, whether that's the teachers in school, whether that's the soccer coaches or coaches in other sports, you know, uh, the human race, you know, as a body has a hubris, you know, and a high opinion of themselves, which is usually too high an opinion of themselves and their personal viewpoint of the world, which, you know, means they cannot get the best education for their kids because they think they're right. I think I'm right. You think you're right, Philippe. You're from Brazil, you, so you obviously think you're more right than just about anybody else in soccer. You know? And to a certain degree, I think that's hurting Brazil's ability to get back to where they have been in the past, you know, on a pedestal for the rest of the world, because they're really slow in understanding that they're no longer on a pedestal because of all the things that you've pointed out and the way in which Brazilian society is changing and people are being torn away too early from the roots that develop that incredible creativity, etc. So... You know, what we're here to do today is, is to outline what it is that has made the Legends Club so successful in developing, to a point, really creative, deceptive dribblers, goal scorers, who are also good on the dirty side of the ball because of all the small space stuff that we do and the incredible chaos and crowded areas that we employ to develop this super soccer computer brain, as well as, obviously, the physiological abilities to score goals, strike a beautiful ball, beat players in the one-on-one, but also defend like an aggressive guard dog, you know, when needed. You know, so... so um, you know, it's, it's important that we get into this in some depth so that people understand why it is that we are a certain way. And as we discussed the topics for the coming episodes, we decided to highlight both the bad and the good. And I start with the bad on purpose from our upbringing, because in our upbringing in terms of developing great soccer players especially here in north america where the history is short we have a lot more bad than we have good in the upbringing as americans of great soccer players that can help the usa to win a world cup in the future you know and you know obviously optimize their own individual development and get the most that they can out of our sport in terms of learning for life and preparation for life. Hopefully that all makes sense. Yeah, I think you set the stage well, but I think it comes back to um, since this specific episode, we're, we're digging into your upbringing. Paint us a picture. What did what did soccer um, for a young Andy Barney in Oxford, England um, uh, look like? And hold that thought because, you know, I want to, you know, um, I want to point out that everything that we do as a club is stolen. And I'm using the word stolen very purposefully here, you know, and so... So, you know, what, what we do as a club is partially stolen from the, you know, the, the limited successes and the, the great failures of my upbringing in, in terms of developing me as a, as a player, you know. But I was lucky because my upbringing developed me in unique ways as a person, you know. So, you know, that's important. And, and you know, I'll outline certain ways in which that happened. Um, but mostly from a soccer perspective, my upbringing um, set me up to fail to a certain degree as a player and that's important so you know having had other things in my upbringing that helped me to be an analyst of life an analyst of 
other societies of people from all around the world, from soccer playing cultures, famous soccer playing cultures, and other cultures that weren't so famous as you know for developing great soccer players. That upbringing um, led me to steal left and right, to pilfer, to you know, to you know, look in other directions and adopt the best from other places in order to create the legends philosophy. And you know, I, I want to use uh, an, an, an acronym, you know, CLEP, uh, as the intro to kleptomania. And most people understand that that um, kleptomania is is um, a, a manic impulse to steal as a result. I of think all coaches have it, right? We're all taking from others and trying to improve a, a, the, a, I would disagree own. completely. I think most coaches have been conditioned by their environment to do what they were brought up doing. And I don't think they're curious enough to, to have that kleptomania, to, to really want to steal. I think most coaches want confirmation that what they've been doing or what the way in which they were brought up was the right way. And so... You know, they don't have the, you know, the kleptomania that I'm viewing, which is the willingness to steal from anywhere and everything, as long as it's positive for the children. Yeah. You know, so, you know, and the reason that I'm, I'm beating to death the word kleptomania, it can be spelt in two ways, with a K or a C at the start of the word. And I'm spelling this with a C uh, because, you know, I want the acronym to be CLEP, C-L-E-P. And so the C stands for creativity... Uh, for, for coaching, uh, for character, you know, the things that have to be involved in a great learning system. You know, the L stands for, for leadership, for life, for the legends, you know, and, you know, the, the way in which this has a much bigger goal and objective beyond just winning soccer games. The E is about the, the environment you know, and how important the environment is. And we're going to leave that one on its own for now because the environment is absolutely massive and it's one of the things that we pay least atten attention to as coaches. We're given a field, we take the field, and we don't think about the environment as having a massive impact, and yet it has an incredible, powerful I impact. And the P is for philosophy, uh, pedagogy. You know, it's, it's, you know, the philosophy is the theory behind what we do. The pedagogy is the, is the actual meat and potatoes of what we do. It's the systems we put in place, you know, and, you know, philosophy has got an artsy-fartsy connotation to it. You know, pedagogy is, you know, the, the wonderful practical application of the philosophy. It is the art of teaching in the classroom, on the field, and the way in which you do it. So kleptomania is what I want people to remember for the purpose of remembering those four letters at the start, the clep, C-L-E-P, because we steal all that is positive from everything in the game. Hopefully that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm following you, um, but I, I, I think I know your story and, and your history well, right? Uh, we talk about it often. There's an, actually, I, I was meaning to, to mention this in the episode. For those of you that haven't watched um, the 30-minute documentary on, on our club um, that, that Philippe 
largely edited. Um, uh, we worked in tandem to put it together several years ago. It, it does a really good visual deep dive into Andy's upbringing. So for those of you that haven't watched, that's on YouTube if you, if you want to know it. In fact, I'll, we'll put it out through our socials so you can watch it. Um, but uh, I know your, your background in Oxford, England, and, and the impact that it had for every single one of those acronyms, right? For the creativity and coaching and the willingness to look at things differently, um, for the um, emphasis placed on leadership, recognizing that if, if, if you're going to teach the game, you're going to use the game as a vehicle to teach those life lessons related to leadership. Um, I recognize how, I, I mean, I've listened to you talk at length, looking back at the environment that you grew up in and the impact that it had on the way you see the world um, that helped define and, and create your philosophy on teaching the game. But I really think it's important for our listeners to get um, at least a Reader's Digest version of what it was like to be a Barney in Oxford, England, living in a boarding house um, um, uh, um, just outside of one of the world's most famous universities. And, and you know, that's, that's something that we're definitely going to get to, you know, if it takes us a couple of episodes, whatever. Um, but the most important thing now is to convince our listeners that we see the world as we are, not the world as it is. And this is a vital point. You can't go any further with our philosophy, uh, you know, or much further with our philosophy if you don't understand that you've been brainwashed by the environment that you grew up in. You know, and I've lived in Oxford in a boarding house, and Oxford as a community uh, is known as the most egalitarian community in the whole of Europe, possibly the world. You know, and that's according to surveys and research that's, that's been done over the years. Uh, obviously because of the university, but it's also got a massive blue-collar presence, town and gown you know, mixes and meets in the middle, and there's been many a battle and a fight over the centuries between town and gown. You know, so what, what we've had you know, growing up in Oxford is this wonderful community that, that you know, stresses and strains us in, in many different ways, but in a good way because it's very diverse. You know, and, and it's extremely international and on one side, extremely intellectual, on the other side, extremely blue collar. You know, so it's, it's really a mixture of a, of a whole bunch of, you know, different never the twain shall meet attitudes, influences, you know. And so, um, you know, and, and what I'd like people to do, and this is hard to do, you know, without the visual of seeing this paragraph in writing. But there is a paragraph that is tremendously powerful in illustrating the fact that we see the world as we are, not the world as it is. So uh, I, want, I want you, the listeners, to write this down. Grab a pen, grab a pencil, and write this brief paragraph hey, we'll, down. We'll just put it on the... We'll on, the, on. on an image and on the social media so they yeah. don't have to write it down. Yeah, but the image is not going to be seen by a lot of the audience, so I'm going to read <laughs> it out so they can write it down. Um, it goes like this. Write it down, you know, replay this, you know, and, you know, real quick. It goes like this. The finished files are the result of years of scientific study combined with the fulfilling experience of many years. Right. Replay it however many times that you need to in order to get that down and then take that what you have written down and show it to anyone, your wife, your kids, your neighbors, your soccer team, the parents of the kids on your soccer team, uh, and you will be amazed at this result. 
you, when you show it, you have to ask the audience how many Fs they count in that paragraph. And almost nobody will get the actual number of Fs in the paragraph. And there's a good reason why, which we'll get to in a minute. You know, most people will get all of the Fs that sound like Fs traditionally sound like, which is the F in finished, the F in files, the two Fs in fulfilling, you know, the F in scientific. They all sound like Fs. Phonetically, they sound like Fs. And what you're going to see, though, is that most of your audience will miss at least one, probably two, and often three Fs that are all within the same word. Those are the Fs that are contained within the word of. And why do they miss the Fs contained within the word of? Within the word of? It's because they sound like Vs. And we read and listen phonetically. So when we're reading, we're actually sounding out words in our mind. So we're counting only Fs that sound like Fs. So we actually do not, despite the evidence of our eyes and the fact that they're staring us in the face, and they're part of the, the three smallest words in the paragraph of, we miss out on the fact there's three V-sounding Fs within the paragraph just because they don't sound like Fs. So if you do not believe that you see the world as you are, not the world as it is after this exercise is, I'm sorry, you're, you're dumber than dumb. Because, you know, there's no other way around it. You have to be able to say to yourself, okay, I get it now. I am phonetically sounding this out in, in English phonetics. What's really interesting is the people that crack this code straight away. I had one in a team meeting, uh, you know, just a couple of weeks ago, tryouts, you know, and, you know, and, and after, you know, I had gone through the whole group, only one person got nine Fs out of this paragraph because there's nine there, you know, and, um, and I said to him, I said, you must have been brought up in a different culture because almost nobody gets nine Fs. And he said, no, I'm American. And his wife turned to him and said, no, you're not. You know, you're from Hawaii. <laughs> and he was brought up in Hawaii. Yeah, he was American, but he was brought up speaking Hawaiian in his family atmosphere. You know, so, you know, he completely in his mind sounded out the three Fs that sounded like these. You know, he, sound, he, he, he did not fall into the trap of sounding them out like Fs would be because in the Hawaiian language, apparently, they don't sound that way. So he read them instead of sounding them out because... English was his second language, not his first language, if that all makes sense. So, you know, excuse me, laboring the fact that we see the world as we are, not the world as it is, you know, because that's really important in, in what comes next, you know, and, and hopefully that all makes sense. Yeah, any questions? Any input? I mean, I, I agree that um, as I get older and attempt to be more mature and more wise and a better leader and mentor of people around me, um, I'm constantly reminding myself and trying to push back the bias that is my life experience related to seeing an item or trying to put myself in the shoes of, of, of the opposite opinion um, uh, and understanding their perspective given that. Um, but it's a challenge, right? It's, it's not human nature. And I think, and I think that's, the best thing for any person to do because if you only look at one side you have a tunnel vision and you know that might be your opinion and but you're never giving you 
a real chance of figuring out if that's your actual opinion because you're not gathering all the facts. So if you want to believe in something, you also need to understand all the other stuff, the opposite, so then you can actually compare and know, okay, I do really believe in this. That's actually what I believe in. And, you know, you got to be able to experience and to see and give yourself a chance and be willing to change uh, your opinion because, uh, again, you can learn so much from many different people, from many different cultures. You know, nobody uh, has ever pleased everybody in the world. Nobody has ever done everything right. And, you know, you can learn from, from everybody. And I think that's what most people don't do. They grew up a certain way. They have a certain view and they just want to be involved with people that agree with them and have that same view and they don't want to give a chance and they actually a lot of times have biased opinions against the opposite side that they don't even know uh it's actually not even true it's just what they've been told and they've been lied to and all that kind of stuff so it's very important to experience and to give yourself a chance so you can actually form an intelligent opinion so couldn't agree more um and and what we have here is an outlier and many people listening to this podcast will recall the fantastic book by Malcolm Gladwell outliers you know and you know what he wrote about was um you know his definition of an outlier which is something that is situated uh from or classed differently from a main or related body Uh, and he also made this point. It is a statistical observation that is markedly different in value from the others of the sample. And what's kind of neat about, you know, where I was brought up is it is an outlier. It's, it's something that is completely re removed from the norm. Oxford, England is the most incredible city. It's an absolutely wonderful city to visit and spend time in uh, because there's so much to see. If you delve into the universities, the ancient buildings, the traditions, you know, all of the things that um, have, have led it to be one of the top universities in the world, one, two, or three, for the existence of the ranking system, um, you know, it is just a wonderful, wonderful city. And I got lucky. I was born there, I was brought up there, and, and I got to work in the colleges, I got to rub shoulders with, you know, lecturers, with students, you know, and, you know, also, you know, the blue-collar workers behind the scenes in the kitchens, which is where I worked as a kid, you know, and, you know, I, I had the... Um, The, the, the pleasure and the, and the good fortune to win the ovarian lottery as Warren Buffett <laughs> so, so, you know, aptly puts it because, you know, where I was brought up gave me a combination of, of rough and tumble, blue collar, you know. All I'm doing right now is envisioning your mom's ovaries. <laughs> <laughs> all I'm thinking. Does it nice? Doesn't that say something about your mind? All, all, oh, you just said ovarian. All I, th all I thought was Rio sounds so much more fun than a bunch of <laughs> universities. <laughs> and I've always wanted to go to Carnival in Rio. You know, just to just to stand on the sidelines. Oh, and you watch can't, the you can't, you can't handle it anymore. You can't handle it anymore. <laughs> You're probably right. You're not game fit enough, you as know, you once said. We were recently in the Caribbean, and uh, you know, we we attended one of these mini car carnivals in the Caribbean. I nearly had a heart attack. <laughs> <laughs> What was going on? 
<laughs> so um, you know, anyway, you know, you know, Oxford England, you know, was you know the background to this, and I won the ovarian lottery from that perspective. Um, but then I won the ovarian lottery to a much greater degree uh, because. You know, my mom and dad were enterprising. They didn't have much in education. My mom left school when she was eight or nine to look after her younger brothers and sisters. She was the eldest. And my dad left school at about 14 and went to work in an abattoir, a slaughterhouse. You know, because, you know, that's what you did in the East End of London when you were a kid. Just like I worked in a butcher shop and I did newspaper rounds, you went and got a job at an early age. uh, Because the family needed the money in order to survive and progress, you know, in life. And so, um, you know, I, I was brought up in this incredible environment where, you know, my, my mum and dad got a mortgage on the house we lived in, and then a few years later got a mortgage on the house next door, turned it into a boarding house. My dad did all of the renovations on his own. He was a hardworking, incredibly resourceful guy, you know, and so he never paid any builders or construction people to do any work for him. He did all the work, and we let out rooms as he finished them in the house next door. As he was still working on the house next door that they, you know, had taken a second mortgage on, you know, we let out these rooms, and these lodges came into our house for virtually everything at that point in time, aside from to sleep. They came in to eat breakfast and dinner they came in to watch tv they came in to recreate they came in to play board games you know there wasn't any social media so this was how people integrated into the you know oxford england and the societies that they were going to be part of and a lot of these people were there for months studying at oxford university visiting lecturers unbelievably intelligent people you know that that served as my backdrop a working class kid with parents that were largely uneducated you know that got the opportunity to you know, rub shoulders with to listen to to learn from people with incredible intellectual ability from all over the world it was unknown none of my teammates none of my school friends had this opportunity and and at the at the time i didn't appreciate it it was what it was. I was just a kid that was in that environment. I didn't think in depth about what I had, the opportunity that I had been given. Later on, of course, you know, I realized that I saw things differently from the average bear in society. And that, that's, we've told this story on this, this podcast before. We're not going to tell the story now, but let me reference it. Is when we talk about 2v2s, and the first time you saw the Ghanaian youth national team training in Manchester, um, playing with 30-plus players inside the penalty box, playing multiple games of 2v2s, you talk, you talk about that your first reaction was viscerally negative. It was like, what the heck is this? this it is it is crazy it is chaotic where are my cones where are my cones right like because you looked at it from your lens of soccer but because you had that background that upbringing of visiting lecturers from all across the world that constantly pushed you um, uh, to to look at things and 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 think at things differently and not to just assume that what you saw on its surface was how it was it 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 allowed you it enabled you it forced you to 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 push back those biases and just watch and that's where um, uh, I mean there's been a lot of moments or epiphanies that have had a giant impact on the way that we teach the game for the tens of thousands of kids that we've taught the game to. Um, and, but that is one of the biggest flashpoints for me. Um, it was, was that moment. And without your background in, in, in the living room playing chess with and watching so-and-so to do the whirling dervish in the rain in the front yard, without that, um, that doesn't happen. 
I agree. And, and in my mind to this day, he works in strange ways. You know, like Philippe says, where are my cones? Right? And my mind immediately leapt to, you know, where are my cojones? You know? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, but it does those things, you know, <laughs> because, because, you know, you have to have guts to be a dri- dribbler. You know, you, you have to have, you know, the balls to go for it. You know what I'm saying? You know, and, and so, you know, I was in this very limited approach to the game that was very, very much English. You know, we are a grim nation in many ways. You know, we're not an artistic, go-for-it, creative nation in the way that Brazil is. You know, we are the grind-out, you know, World War One, World War Two winners with great help from the USA, which, you know, was mostly of British extraction. You know, we ground it out, we ground it out, we ground it out. And our soccer teams over the years, our national team, has ground it out and ground it out, which is we've, we've won world, one World Cup. Because once in a while, grinding it out... How many Euros... Win. Yeah, shut up. <laughs> Same number as Brazil. <laughs> you know, and, and, and so, enough. yeah, you love to rub it in, don't you, Philippe? You know, that's, you've become the new English, you know, the, the country everybody loves to hate. Because I'll take it. <laughs> <laughs> I love that dark side in you, Philippe. Right. <laughs> but, but, you know, it, it, it's really intriguing um, it, how much an, an upbringing, an environment, you know, can change a mentality of a whole family. Yeah. Our family's mentality just flipped as soon as, you know, we opened up a boarding house. You know, my sister is a mental health judge. She has the ability to incarcerate people with mental health problems who are dangerous to society for life. So, you know, you know, the only thing she doesn't have the ability to do is put them to death. You know, there is no death sentence in Britain. So, you know, she can put people behind bars, so to speak. Now, they're in, you know, institutions. You know, they have medical help, you know, because of their problems. You know, but what a responsibility, you know. And so she's got a couple of master's degrees. She's unbelievably well-read and intelligent. Why was that the case? It was because of the environment we were brought up in, not because of our family background. That was totally blue-collar, you know. And so, you know, and I, to a lesser degree, am an intellectual because my sister is off of the charts, always reading multiple books at once, you know. And so, you know, so we kind of broke the mold for our family. Very few of our family members went on and got a degree from college, you know, and, you know, and so, you know, why did that happen? It was the boarding house. It wasn't the fact that my parents were, you know, great educational supporters. Now, they did get us to the library, which created a love for books. But, you know, what we had in that environment was, you know, these incredibly intellectual people that saw the world in a different way. And I had the chance to eat breakfast and dinner and sit within the lounge and, you know, at least listen to the discussions when I was too young to participate. But at an early age, I started to participate, which gave me the ability to, you know, to construct a theory. And then to have to argue my theory and have to do the debate thing and have to look at the theory from both sides of the coin and say, you know, am I right to argue it from this side or should I be arguing the other side? And inevitably, I would find myself by mistake arguing the wrong side and they would turn my opinion around and change me in ways that really became lifelong changes if this all make sense. Yeah, I think this really paints a, 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 a good and a healthy picture for us understanding how legends philosophy got to be where it is, right? The willingness to look at things differently. Um, 
but I, I'm really curious because in our text exchanges, we led up to this, um, to this recording, um, you, you, you said specifically that you really think had you grown up in a different environment, um, that you would have played professionally at the highest level. Um, let's unpack that. What do you mean by that? Well, let's use my family as an example. My dad grew up in the East End of London, which was literally the slum of Britain in those days. It was the Docklands, where all of the dregs of society from other nations um, landed and stayed. You know, the more affluent people from other parts of the world landed and moved on to nicer areas of England, you, yeah. know, you know, to you know, the mansions of the aristocracy, etc. But the people that were poor, you know, the, the ship rats... You know, they landed in the East End of London and they stayed because, you know, if they had gone anywhere else, the discrimination would have been rife. At least staying in the East End of London, they had a lot of people around them that were in a similar boat. And so that's where my parents came from. So, you know, my dad, you know, became a boxer. You know, there's a there's tremendous history of boxing in the family. Uh, Daniel Mendoza, who's my great, great, however many greats grandfather, you know, was the world champion, uh, sorry, the English champion heavyweight boxer. By default, by default, um, he became the world champion. Sorry about that. I've got to turn the ringer on my phone down. Um, you know, that was re- really loud. Yeah. <laughs> hey, you have to have it loud. As you get older, you have to turn it up. Oh. Yeah. What, is what that did you the say? same reason why they have the letters really big on <laughs> their phone? Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. Andy's going to get a jitterbug phone soon. I'm they're sorry. Wear glasses. They're already wearing glasses. Can you speak louder for me? I didn't understand that. Um, so... You know, so what what we had in the family was this boxing background. Daniel Mendoza was this wonderful boxer with, may I say, a different way of looking at the world of boxing. He was the first creative boxer. You know, jump in, throw a few punches, jump out, make people run, tire them out. Bigger, heavier people struggled with that. So, you know, that's how he won his championships, by being intellectual as well as being a good boxer. And, you know, I've got his book and, and uh, you know, he wrote a book, would you believe, in, in, the, in the, the last part of the 1700s you know he was he was that blue-collar guy that wrote a book about his exploits you know so you know our history as a family has always been on the ragged edge blue-collar but also intellectual blue-collar if you like if if that really exists um but so you know i was brought up in this fighting family you know that that found a way out of the east end of london thanks to adolf hitler because I wouldn't be here if it hadn't been for Adolf in the Second World War, because my dad met my mom because they were both evacuated from bomb target areas of the Nazis. You know, Birmingham, England, the industrial part of Birmingham, England was where my mom was born and brought up, and the industrial part of London was where my dad was born and brought up. And as a result of the war, you know, they didn't have houses to go back for or a society to go back to, you know. And so uh, they, they, you know, came to Oxford for various reasons, and, you know, you know, and met you know, at the car factories, you know, blue collar, uh, you know, down and dirty car factories, you know, um, which is the other side of Oxford, because there's a really grimy blue collar history, you know, involved with Oxford as well. It's not just the pretty, you know, riverside, beautiful Oxford University, centuries old buildings that the tourists visit. There's also big factories on the outskirts of Oxford, where I did a four year apprenticeship, you know, and, you know, set me up to realize I didn't want to do this for the rest of my life before I went back to college. And so, 
so what we've got is we in in Oxford we had this incredible environment you know which was the breeding ground for intellectualism but also had this rough and tumble side and I had the best of both worlds so to speak or the worst of one world and and the best of the other world because I lived in a boarding house but also I was brought up in that you know daily fist fighting culture and soccer in England wasn't like in Johnson County USA soccer was a dirty working class sport you know, and the 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 well worn saying is, you know, rugby is a gentleman uh, is a animal sport played by gentlemen, and soccer is a gentleman sport played by animals. That was very true in terms of my blue collar upbringing, and and so you know, I had this you know this really opposite you know, educational experience where, you know, at breakfast and dinner and often during the evenings later on, I was involved in very, very intellectual discussion, at least listening when I was a little kid, joining in later and having to put forward my own arguments, you know, and, you know, having to read to find out what the truth was in the arguments that I'd been listening to. And, and so it was a really, really weird environment, good in some ways, bad in others, because we encountered biases from other countries. Even though these people were very intelligent, they had their own bigotries. They had their own biases. You know, we had somebody that was part of the royal family in Bahrain, you know, that came and stayed with us. And he saw things totally from a very privileged kingdom perspective because he was part of, you know, the royal family, you know. And so we had to negotiate these extremes you know, and figure out what was true. And we had, you know, working class lodgers, you know, blue collar guys from Glasgow, England that, you know, had come down to spend two months at the car factory to study, you know, car design and car manufacturing. You know, so, we, you know, we had extreme Catholics, extreme Protestants, you know, we had atheists, we had agnostics, and, and everybody argued their side of the coin. It got quite heated at times, but nobody took it to an extreme where people would get into a fight because my dad was a boxer, you know, and, you know, they, you know they obviously they would not have won the fight if they'd started one. So it got to the point of, you know, nose to nose, and my dad would step in and part people and, you know, and, and lessen the intensity and bring it back to earth, you know. So, you know, it was a very passionate environment. It was a very intellectual environment, but also a very blue-collar environment, you know. And, you know, we were from the extremes, basically. Both extremes were present within this this boarding school environment. So, mm. so you know, what was the end result? And, and it doesn't hurt to, to quote Peter Vermees, who's still the head coach of, of, this, of Sporting Kansas City to this day. Somehow. And, you know, and, you know, fair play to him. He's done an amazing job. He's the longest standing MLS coach. And, you know, he's survived in one of the most cynical jobs in the world, professional coaching. And so, you know, when he met with all of the clubs, ours obviously included, that have made up the soccer scene in Kansas City, this all of the youth clubs, he said, the legends have developed more academy players. Oh, my golly gosh. Okay. I'm in the middle of a podcast right now, so... <laughs> Right, Andy keeps leading into the, all of the stereotypes you have for old I'm people. <laughs> Andy just answered so, the phone. This, this, is good for, this is good to illustrate one thing. I'm a technological idiot. Like yeah, most was, old people. I get you right. old person. Right. So, this illustrates our point. It totally fits with what we're discussing here. <laughs> After all this time on your cell phone, I've not even figured out you know, how to turn it off. So... 
you know, and, or turn the, turn the volume down so that it's permanently turned down. I thought I just did. I apologize to, to the viewers. So uh, understand that in, and right now in the background, my wife is telling me to hang up, and I haven't got a clue how to do it. So, the red button. The red button! <laughs> you need help. Yeah. Can you turn that off for me, Philippe? <laughs> So what I'd like to point out to our viewers is my she credibility is totally be, shot right she now. She might be mad at you because she was yelling. <laughs> you know, in a, in a weird way, this totally fits with this episode, doesn't it? I just hung up on her face. Trace, I'm was sorry. Was it a FaceTime? Yeah. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Did she have any clothes on? I don't know. I didn't look at <laughs> <laughs> he couldn't see through the tears in his eyes. Everything was blurry. <laughs> anyway, getting back to Peter Vermees, he identified our club as the one club that had developed, you know, they'd done a research project and the intern had counted all the players that came out of the, you know, the youth system in Kansas City. And his quote was absolutely priceless for us as the Legends Club. He said, the Legends Club, according to our research by our intern, you know, has identified the Kansas City Legends as having developed more professional players than all of the rest of the youth clubs in Kansas City history. And there's hundreds of youth clubs that have come and gone. There's probably over 100 clubs in the Kansas City metro area, which in a weird roundabout way is why we became a, a World Cup venue for the next World Cup in 2026. You know, so, you know, so, you know, how did this all happen you know you know why do we do it differently and and this is the 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 crux of 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 what we're getting to here and you know and and it it all happened because of the various experiences that i had good and bad growing up so you know we've highlighted the good so many times in our episodes let's highlight the bad for me you know why is it that i didn't play pro you know, and a lot of it is the fact that our discussions with our lodgers were so uh, in-depth, so intellectual, so interesting that a lot of times I would stay in discussions with the lodgers rather than taking a ball outside and banging it against a wall. You know, because I had something that was, you know, tempting as an alternative to soccer. You know, and, and so and one of the things that was incredibly tempting was that one of the lodgers taught me how to play chess when I was just a little kid. Maybe I was five, you know, and, you know, taught me how to play chess. And from that point onwards, I met the lodgers at the door with a chess board and a chess set that I've still got to this day. And my first question to the lodger wasn't, where are you from? What's your name? It was, do you play chess? And from that point onwards, you know, I would berate that lodger if he refused to play me at chess while he was with us. And usually there was two or three of the lodgers that played chess. So, you know, I, I would have victim after victim. And, you know, obviously when I first started playing, I, I was the victim. I was learning. But the beauty was a lot of these guys had played chess to a decent level. And so they coached me. They trained me. And because of that, I, I became a pretty good chess player. And I got to the point where I could move almost instantly after they moved and I could beat all comers in the boarding house. You know, no matter what their background or whatever, you know, I got to the point where I became really good. But I never played chess club because I was also an athlete and I played every one of the English sports at the school level apart from cricket, which I found too boring. 
you know, it just wasn't fast enough. It was too slow. And, you know, I only ever wanted to bat or be a wicketkeeper or be a bowler, which, you know, those are the active parts of the game. And so I ditched that at an early age because I wanted to do other sports. You know, so this is the negative is I became very diverse. Instead of going out in the, in the, in, on, in the backyard and shooting against the wall, well, kicking the ball against the wall, you couldn't shoot because I'd break too many windows. You know, I, I would play chess in the lounge. So I became a decent soccer player because chess was very attractive to me. And my parents got me books and you know, the lodges and, you know, th- you know l- looking at where they were from and, and trying to figure out, you know, the, you know, the arguments that they were putting forward helped me fall in love with history and geography. So I had a lot of positives there, but I had a lack of focus on soccer, even though my Uncle Vic played for Napoli you know, after the Second World War, you know, and we had a soccer playing family. I had two under-19 uncles that, that represented Spurs, you know, in their under-19 first team, got the program and all the proof, you know, got pictures of my uncle representing Napoli, you know, and, you know, so the family background was massively into soccer. I was just too diverse to get to be a great soccer player. I played semi-pro. I represented four countries, the British collegiate team, which was the collegiate team for four countries, England, Scotland, Northern Ireland, and Wales. But I never played full pro, which I had the physiology to do it. I was a phys ed student and found out later that I was in the top maybe 25, 30% in terms of speed, as well as aerobic capacity, you know, as compared to EPL players down the road. And so, so I could have played maybe if I'd really focused on soccer I could have played at a high level but then I wouldn't have probably been a coach at 16 I started coaching in my alma mater club in Oxford England and so this is the upside downside scenario and I probably would have become a baseball player yeah because your dad was in love with baseball right yeah yeah. and because you wouldn't have become a coach (laughs) yeah you know, uh, you know, I probably granted would have been a better baseball player than I was a soccer player. I wouldn't have been. I found a good coach, but. <laughs> <laughs> but but you know the the point about this this episode is in everybody's upbringing, there's good and bad, you know, and you know if you're going to be a you know a world leader in something, there has to be a point in which you specialize. And, you know, I read all this stuff about multi-sports is the way to go. And, you know, I know in my heart of hearts that's a bunch of garbage because not one of the greatest players in world history was a multi-sport athlete. You know, they all specialized from a really early age in the sport of soccer. Do you know why people say that? People say that in America because they're the best in American football, in basketball, in American sports. And then they think, oh, these... Kobe Bryant or whatever, he played soccer growing up. He played this growing up. Yeah, but they're competing against Americans that, who are also doing the same thing. In soccer, it's impossible to be a multi-sport, and then you're going to compete eventually for a college scholarship with a kid in Brazil or in England. So what you're There's saying no is way. that the, the fascination or the argument to be made that, that in order to, to play at the highest level, you need to be a multi-sport athlete, that argument that's made often is, a, is an American argument. Made. Yes. It's not made in other countries. I don't, I'm not saying if it's made in other countries or not. I think it's true. In America, when you're talking about baseball, when you're talking about football, when you're talking about basketball, because when these kids, those are sports that America is so dominant. So the kids in America, 
they are already in a big advantage. So them doing multi-sports doesn't really hurt because the kids they're competing against are also doing multi-sports. So when you go to a sport that is way more international like soccer and the kids in Brazil, in England, in Argentina, in Spain, in France, they're not playing other sports and they're competing against them to be pro, to be a, get a college scholarship. The American kids is obviously going to be in a, in a disadvantage. Like it that's just doesn't make any sense. Yeah, that's a good point, and and we're seeing the evidence of it at the collegiate level right now. Because at the collegiate level, international students are taking scholarships away from the American kids because you know the American kids are going up against a kid from England, for example, that has only really ever played soccer to any great degree because you know it's such a massive focus within English society. Correct. So you know they haven't; they're not going up against a kid that has also played some baseball, some basketball, you know, and, and you, all the American and, sports. And that and that's already happening when you're looking at NCAA Division One, and then you go look at Division Two and NAIA, where the rules for eligibility are way more lenient there's nearly no Americas anymore. I mean, that checks out with my life experience because the English fellow that was on my team from Brighton, um, if <laughs> when I tossed him a ball and told him to throw it, <laughs> it looked like it was the first time he'd ever thrown anything. And, and there's a lot of truth in that, you know. And so, you know, and, and once again, we're here to discuss the upside and downside of, you know, our upbringings, you know. And, and Andrew's going to get, you know, the, the center stage in an episode and Philippe is unfortunately going to get the center stage in another episode. <laughs> but... You know, we have to let him do that because he's part of the. He's going to struggle with the downside. <laughs> there is no downside to Brazil. No, there, 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 is, there is. There is. Well, Andy, we're we're going to be wrapping up soon. I really want to. I really want to at least unpack this one part of what you mentioned before through the text string before we, um, uh, uh, before we recorded, and you mentioned specifically about the environment at your house in which you used a rebound surface. We've talked about it before. It's one specific type of ball striking that you beat to death but that ball striking is by no stretch the most difficult way to to strike a ball um, can you unpack that a little bit for us yeah so you know the, the upside was i had a piece of wall that i could actually rebound the, the the ball against the downside was it was under the lounge window and you know there was about 50 60 mini panes of glass in that lounge window you know all held apart by you know wooden frame each pane of glass had its own individual wooden frame around it you know and so if i made the mistake of popping the ball up you know then i would break a you know often break a pane of glass and you know which led to you know my dad teaching me how to replace a pane of glass and i could do it really quickly eventually you know and do it very well over time um you know because i broke so many panes of glass and the alternative was to be banned from doing that you know, by my mom, who didn't want her lounge window broken. So dad, mom, you know, had a pact. You know, he would teach me to replace the glass that I broke. And I got to the point where within 15, 20 minutes, I could replace a pane of glass that I broke by popping it up. But here was the problem. There was only like a 10 to 12 foot patio, concrete patio, um, you know, where I could, I could rebound the ball underneath the lounge window. I couldn't go five, six feet to the left because my mom had a stained glass kitchen door. You know, the, if I broke that, you know, that was like 100 pounds, which in those days was a fortune to get that glass replaced. And it was a pride and joy. I had to stay well away from that. So I became the guy that would just pity pat the ball back and forth about eight feet, six feet, seven feet. And so I would either first time it or I'd take a touch and do it again. And I became incredibly good at first touch and hitting it to the wall softly 
to, to first touch it again and hit it again and again and again. So my reception touch, and because nobody told me any different, I went to my strong foot, which was my left foot, which turned out to be an advantage because left foot is, uh, you know, one in eight, you know, according, you know, close as I can, I can assess, according to all surveys of, of left and right footedness. And so, you know, I had, the, you know, the, the magic bullet, the left footedness that defenders weren't used to defending against. So, you know, I became a tremendous passer, a really good first-time receiver. I could kill the ball on a dime, you know, with my left foot, and I could pass it really quickly and really accurately because I'd, I'd spent hours and hours, thousands of hours, just, you know, pity-patting that ball against the wall. But here's what I didn't become, which was a great finisher. You know, I was pigeon-toed as a kid, so I became a great passer with the outside of my foot, which is pretty rare. So I would go onto a field, I could still pass with the inside of my foot, but I had the ability to bend the ball around people, just pass into teammates, you know, and I had this unusual ability with the outside of my foot, so I became instantly recognizing as that kid, recognized as that kid who's really good at bending the ball with the outside of the foot. Didn't have any power, not great accuracy over 25 yards when I was shooting, so didn't score a lot of goals, you know, but... I did pass the ball accurately, and later on, I think that was a big factor in me being able to play for British colleges as a left fullback, is I was always able to hit my targets with the passes, and I had a great first touch under pressure, you know, but in terms of goal scoring, I was a total waste of time. But had you had a full wall and a 20-foot concrete pad, you think that that it would have changed the trajectory of, of the level in which you played? Bingo. And, you know, and I'm not trying to defend my environment because it had a big hole in it. Mm-hmm. I couldn't tee off on the ball. So I never learned to hit a 25-yard bullet with accuracy. And so I never became a great finisher. So as an attacking midfielder, as a youth player, and you know, possibly one of the better attacking midfielders in the Oxford City surrounding area, um, you know, I, I got picked to play for representative sides, Oxfordshire Youth. You know, I got picked to play for Oxford City as a 16-year-old, but they moved me back to a left fullback because I was aggressive, you know, and I could always keep the ball when I won it. Most of the time, keep the ball when I won it, but I would win a high percentage because of my, you know, East End of London family background, working class you know, boxing, family background, you know, I was aggressive, you know, and so these things played into my ability to play to a decent level semi-professionally and play on British colleges when I got to college, but, you know, not in a really creative manner, you know, more in a destructive manner. And it was totally due to my environment. My ability to see things differently and to head up the Legends Club was because I was born, uh, not born, but brought up in a boarding house environment, intellectualizing with people from all over the world that were highly intelligent. Some of that had to rub off and allow me to look at the world in a different way. And so what we've got here is an absolute original model that hasn't been reproduced as yet, to my knowledge, anywhere in the world. We're sitting as we record this podcast in a facility that has no parallel worldwide. You know, in an environment that has no parallel worldwide, with a philosophy that has no parallel worldwide, because I luckily lucked into a family that built 
an environment, a boarding house environment with great people from all over the world in the middle of a soccer hotbed because England, when I was eight years of age, won the World Cup in 1966. And we loved the game as a nation. It, you know, we were supposed to be the founders of the modern game in England. You know, and so, so you know, I was brought up in this family that loved the game, in this society that loved the game, you know, with some rebound walls to take advantage of to a limited degree, you know, as we've just spoken about. You know, and so I got the benefits of a great environment a family environment an intellectual culture that has enabled me to start coaching as a 16 year old because I was always communicative because all of the all of those debates made me a communicator you know gave me the ability to have an idea and to promote an idea to an audience so I was kind of ready made as a coach by my environment but I was held back by my environment by all the other sports I played by the fact that I only had a pity pat rebound wall instead of a shooting wall to tee off on I was held back by those other things which is probably why I didn't go on and play professionally like my cousin Victor who, who had a career playing professionally in my generation and my uncle Vic had a full career as a, a professional player in his generation I didn't have that one-track mindedness that 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 side of the family had or that family within our greater family had if that makes sense yeah, it does. It does. I'm eager uh, for the next episode to to find if Philippe can come up with a quote from the Brazilian version of Alan Greenspan <laughs> to kick off the episode. You've been There's your challenge. Philippe. There's your you, challenge. You know Philippe's like, remind me who Alan Greenspan is. He sounds important. <laughs> and, and Andrew, to use a, a, a medieval knight's analogy, has laid down the gauntlet to you. <laughs> gauntlet. gauntlet. Yeah. Uh, well, very good. Uh, guys, it was great to be back in studio again. Um, uh, I'm eager to see how Andy's dentures progress over the next few days. Um, I think he's got a, t- a, a denture whitening routine he's doing morning and night, which is probably what his wife was FaceTiming about <laughs> to check in on. Uh, but that said, great episode, guys, and uh, we'll see you guys next time. See you guys. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Bye.